Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, odds are that you're getting into a car or truck and driving over the roads when you want to get where you want to go. Why? Because that's the best option available to most of us. And yet, when we're stuck in traffic or when we hit a pothole, I think we all feel like this whole thing can be done better. Now, one of the people who knows that we can do better is Bob Poole, the Director of Transportation Policy and Searle Freedom Trust Transportation Fellow at the Reason Foundation. He's been a transportation critic and consultant for over 30 years. Look, his bio is really impressive. And I wanted to talk with him about helping people get where they want to go. Bob, welcome. Thanks very much, James. Good to be here. Why is it that personal vehicles dominate the surface transportation market? Well, they really are the best way to get from point A to point B. Uh, We have a largely suburbanized uh, country in in terms of metro areas, and you just cannot uh, get enough transit that's affordable to to build and operate to get people from every point A to every point B. But the road network is a network. It get, it connects basically every point to every other point. And studies done by, by academics find that uh, you can get in large metro areas, uh, you know, the top 50, you can get to maybe 45, 50 to 70% of all the jobs in 30 minutes by car. Uh, by transit, you can get to about uh, 10% of the jobs in 30 minutes, and, and you only get to about half in 60 minutes. So that's that's a, an empirical uh, evidence that shows that uh, that the car is really, the, it's, the, it's not a, a, a love affair with the car. It's the, simply the best choice for the vast majority of people. Yeah, and the commutes are kind of important because like this is tying you to uh, to your income range, Absolutely. and if you can't get to where you are going to earn money, it's really tough to live anywhere. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Now, a pillar of your stance on this whole transportation policy is that you want roads to function like regulated utilities. Yes. Why is that? Well, because what what we have now is a system that's basically run by politicians. Um, and it works poorly. <laughs> the money is th- that you pay, and ga- gas taxes are supposedly what pays for almost all of all of our roads. Uh, and uh, to a very limited extent, we have some toll roads, and those those are paid directly by the tolls. But the gas taxes are not paid to the road provider, which is the state DOT in most cases. They're paid to the state treasury, and the state treasury then gives the state DOT some money. But how they spend it is decided by the legislature. And the legislature has all kinds of political incentives. Uh, For example, uh, every member of a legislature wants to have ribbon cutting opportunities as possible every year in his or her district. They say, look what I brought you. Vote for me next time. Uh, But maintenance, which is critically important, uh, is basically invisible. You don't get any, any political points for making sure that proper maintenance is. So we have a deferred maintenance problem in both highways and transit in the United States. That's it seems to get worse every year, although there's some modest improvements, but it's very much varies by state. So we have a politically dysfunction system, dysfunctional system that often picks boondoggle projects that have benefits far less than their cost, uh, but then also uh, doesn't do big projects that are, lumpy. They're, they're maybe in two members districts out of out of 100. 
And so, well, that politically is very, very difficult to amass the billion dollars that it's going to take to do that one project. Uh, so we, the system really doesn't work properly at all. And uh, whereas we don't have that kind of problem, for the most part, with water utilities, electric utilities, telecom utilities, natural gas utilities, you pay the bill based on how much you use. It goes directly to the provider. Provider is responsible for 100% of the, of the capital costs of building the facilities and maintaining them and is subject to some kind of, of oversight. Now, I can, can quarrel with a lot of utility regulation. I wrote a I edited a book called Unnatural Monopolies that criticized this. But that system is more accountable and better than the way we do highways. And highways are at least as important, uh, highways and roads, as, as electric, electricity, water, and the other utilities. So that's the. I wrote a book uh, trying to put together everything that I've learned on in 30 years of transportation policy, about highways at least, uh, in, in 2018, called Rethinking America's Highways and got the University of Chicago Press to publish it. It actually sold better than they or I expected, and they came out with a paperback in 2021. So I guess it's getting somewhere, and it's gotten a pretty good reception from state DOTs and, and transportation organizations. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about the, like highways or highways and roads as a regulated utility. And it's that there's a direct user, uh, user fee. That user fee goes exclusively to the people whose job it is to provide these roads and keep them in good working order. Um, there is a direct relationship that you have with that utility where you can complain and, and theoretically they can listen to you. And the regulation relationship. Oh, yeah. A customer yeah. provider. Which yeah. You don't have in, in the road system. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I think the, uh, the other thing is the regulation, which is just like, look, you, yes, these, these, these will be owned and operated by some type uh, of entity, but we have to regulate this to serve that type of or function to the public, which is you can't kind of get crazy and do crazy surveillance. You, you've got to make sure that you get these roads are here to help people get where they want to go. Yeah. All right. So that's where you want to go. Where we are is a, is a much different place. <laughs> different place. Um, and one of the one of the main things that I think people have concern with is like the funding mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And again, like when I'm I engage in the Michigan road funding debate, and often this this discussion over the funding mechanism is interpreted and with good reason as just another chance to yep. to t stick it to taxpayers. Um, but when I look at road funding too, most road oh, there, there's a lot of road funding that's not done through these user correct linked taxes. Why is it that so much transportation funding is, you know, operating like a general government expense rather than a user fee? Well, because the uh, the gas tax is visible, uh, people people see it and 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 know it, and and it becomes politically difficult to in to get legislatures to increase the gas tax, whereas the vehicle registration fee is is a lump an annual lump sum. Uh, it's not very visible to people. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't really have the same political salience as as gas taxes. So so that's that's one problem is, is that it's it's a, gas tax is kind of a lightning rod for, for criticism. People don't realize that, uh, for example, a lot of the state DOT's budget comes from federal money that Congress has not increased the federal gas tax rate since 1993. And so the real purchasing power of the federal money uh, is about half what it, what it was uh, at the time when the last increase went into effect. Now, I, I'm not in favor of, of the federal program. 
I, if I had my way, I'd, I'd get it back to the states being responsible. The states own the highways. Federal government mm-hmm. does not own any except except a few things in national parks and things like that. So, and that's even the case for all these interstate highways. Absolutely. Yes, they're interstate, but they're, when they're in your state, they're owned by the owned state. Owned by under the responsibility of the state uh, legislature and the state DOT mm-hmm. to properly maintain, expand as necessary, rebuild when worn out, and so forth. And they're not really taking that seriously enough. And I think part of the problem is that uh, Congress continues to shovel money to the states, not not just from gas taxes, this whole infrastructure massive trillion dollar infrastructure bill is all funded on the federal credit card. Every mm-hmm. every dollar of that is borrowed money that our grandchildren will have to eventually pay for in, in terms of uh, you know federal federal indebtedness. Uh, and so it creates the impression Big Brother in Washington is giving us free money. We don't have to worry about what do roads really cost. So people don't have a clue. Uh, in my book, I have a table that lists uh, the uh, data is about 10 years old by now. But uh, what the average household utility bill is for electricity, water, telecoms, cable, and so forth. And what the average amount of gas tax a household pays. And the gas tax is the smallest of any of those by, you know, it's it's half of what people pay for water, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and even less than what they pay for electricity and get alone cable uh, TV or, or now streaming. Um, so people don't they don't understand how expensive roads really are because the cost has been disguised by free federal money and by other indirect sources like the vehicle registration fee. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the things that I really like about your work is that you're like, look, I've got this vision for how we can do this better, but I'm very, I'm trying to help us get from where we are uh, now to that place and trying to implement these ideas, the fairness of user fees, the, uh, the transparency of the system, the direct relationship between users and and, the, and these service providers. And, and you're like, given all of the crazy politics around this issue, what can we do? So tell me about your work on express toll lanes. Yes. Well, one of my big, big accomplishments uh, turns out to be, and I didn't have any idea it would really catch on, is express toll lanes that uh, can either be added to a congested freeway as new capacity, or you get them uh, the cheap way by converting a carpool lane, uh, which mostly are failures uh, uh, in what they were intended to do, to a, an express toll lane. And the idea is be you charge a variable price, basically a market price, designed to be just enough to keep the lane uh, free flowing at rush hour, 45, 50 mile per hour minimum, uh, which also means the emissions of all kinds, including CO2, are lower at that medium kind of speed as opposed to 65 or 70. Uh, And so I put this idea into a policy paper in 1987, and it was published just at the time when California voters had defeated a transportation bond issue. So I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times and said, look, this is what we need to do uh, uh, to solve congestion. You didn't have this new bond. We're going to have revenue come from new people who voluntarily pay a charge to get a faster and more reliable commute. And it came to the attention of the governor's office and the state DOT's office. They called me and I helped them arrange a conference. They passed legislation the very next year to authorize four pilot projects of toll finance additions to the freeway system. And uh, only two were ever built. But the very first one was the world's first express toll lane in Orange County, California. 
And everybody practically was convinced it wouldn't work, that either nobody would pay outrageous tolls at rush hour or, or it would wind up like a lane the other because everyone would crowd in. And it turns out that was all wrong. It worked beautifully and it's continued to work. It opened in, in December 95. I was at the uh, both at the groundbreaking the four years before and at the ribbon cutting ceremony wearing a hard hat and with the governor there. And uh, we now have 60 of these in operation around the country and probably another dozen in the pipeline being planned and, and developed uh, in, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, uh, uh, Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, Miami, uh, Northern Virginia, all the, all the Virginia suburbs around Washington, D.C. all have express toll lanes now. Uh, the great big one, about $3 billion one, opened uh, just in November uh, on I-66 leading into Washington. Uh, so this has been a big success story. So it was a way, you know, I, I had a, an attraction to road pricing for many years before coming up with that. Uh, but I figured, well, you know, and I, I gave a few, wrote a few articles and talks about, well, living in LA and confronting this horrible con congestion every day, commuting to Reason Foundation. Uh, I, I said, we've got to do something about this. So my first idea, well, we should charge a variable price on all the freeways. I figured out soon that would never fly. Uh, it's something people have always taken for granted as being free, uh, despite the problems wouldn't happen. So I decided, you know, make it an optional thing, make it basically primarily new lanes or converted carpool lanes, and you'd have a chance of getting it implemented. And that's that, that's been the success story all around the country and most of the large metro area. Now, Detroit doesn't have any yet. Philadelphia, the older cities in the Northeast don't. Chicago doesn't. They've talked about it in Chicago. Uh, but uh, all the growing, the Sun Belt and the West and so forth, uh, have all have all done this, and they're all planning more because they work. And the idea, uh, ultimate, my ultimate goal on these is to get an, a whole network, basically the whole freeway system. To the extent that there's congest recurrent congestion, needs to have the alternative of a faster and reliable trip. And it turns out this also is a great improvement for transit because reliable, fast lanes overlaid on the freeway system means the express buses can go fast and be reliable and be much more attractive. When we did this in Miami, and I was a consultant to the Florida DOT on the project, they did the first one on I-95, uh, the, in the first four years after they opened, uh, the express bus ridership quadrupled uh, because the, the, previously it had just been an HOV lane. It was congested, full of violators. It was hardly any faster <laughs> than the regular lanes at rush hour. Now those express buses, and that's a high occupancy, uh, occupancy vehicle lane, which means like you get a, the special lane if yeah. you've got more than two people in your or two or more people in your car. But but that has never worked well anywhere uh, in the country, <laughs> and is now widely recognized. Hardly anybody's building them anymore because uh, uh, mm. because they failed. Uh, in fact, carpooling in in the in the thirty years that government has funded HOV lanes, carpool lanes, uh, carpooling has a fraction of commuting has dropped in half from from about from almost 20% of commuters to uh, about 9% whereas the and the and the lane miles of HOV lanes have doubled in that in that time period so it's a big example of a of a failed program that's finally not expanding any longer for the most part so that was one thing building blocks uh, of of getting people to understand pricing in a way that that is beneficial and has basically no losers and is a win for transit as well the other thing, though, is how do you how do you introduce the idea of of uh, a utility concept? 
And many, many years ago, in my, my first book, Cutting Back City Hall, researching how to how city and county and state governments could contract out service delivery to private firms, I discovered that in France and, and Italy, they had investor-owned toll roads that uh, were companies that essentially regulated utilities uh, because the, 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 the private sector didn't own them. The private sector had long-term leases or long-term concessions that were sometimes 50 years, which is very much like our U.S. regulated electric utilities. Almost all of those are on 50 to 99-year franchises, not permanent ownership. I mean, they own the real property, but they don't have the right to sell the power beyond the term of that franchise agreement. So I thought, well, this is an idea. I didn't do anything with that for years. But when I introduced the paper on express toll lanes, I suggested the private sector could finance them. And the legislation that, that the state passed in California actually had that model built in. And it was called, they were called private toll road uh, bill. And uh, they were 35-year they were leases. Uh, and, uh, and the two that were financed, one was the success was the express toll lanes. The failure was a toll road in a new toll road in San Diego County that, um, was opened after 10 years of environmental litigation and so forth, finally built, mm. opened right in the teeth of the, uh, uh, the great recession and, uh, development, housing development stopped the new, the ridership projections went into a cocked hat and they had to declare bank. It's still there. But the original private mm-hmm. people lost lost their equity, and and it's now run by the county. But uh, in recent, we now have about two dozen billion dollar uh, pilot projects, uh, highway additions, bridge replacements, uh, and uh, and new toll roads, uh, as well as express toll lane project, all privately financed. There about as I said, about about two dozen of those. And that has we those are only in about 10 states so far. That's caught on less rapidly than uh, the express toll lanes per se. Some of the express toll lanes, the majority of them still are done by state DOTs um, and their conversions of carpool lanes. So the capital cost is not huge. A small number have actually been doing their own. They issue revenue bonds uh, just as toll roads at state toll roads do, like the Ohio Turnpike. Uh, but anyway, I. We now have the private sector long term, in some cases, 50 to and we've actually had uh, several uh, state toll road systems long term lease to the private sector. The Chicago Skyway was the first. Uh, the Indiana toll road is the largest of those. It's uh, market value is over three billion dollars uh, and it has a, a 75 year franchise. And the, the uh, two main toll roads in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Were privatized that way uh, as long-term leases about uh, 12 years ago, and the four remaining ones are in the process right now of being privatized by the same way, and that will probably happen in the first half of next year. So that model is gradually uh, gaining uh, acceptance. Meanwhile, it has spread from from uh, France and Italy to Spain, Portugal, uh, most of the countries in, in Mexico, uh, Brazil, Chile. Uh, uh, Argentina, uh, all have these privately uh, funded toll road projects, often converting two-lane highways to four-lane divided toll roads. And uh, in in Sydney and Melbourne, Australia, they also have uh, a lot of these privately financed uh, uh, toll roads. So the model is gaining worldwide attention. The World Bank has endorsed it. There's all kinds of academic papers written about it. 
so that I, that's I consider that my other my other success in trying hmm. to change U.S. transportation uh, and, and getting uh, getting some federal legislation uh, approved that that opens the door for this. And we've had some uh, relaxations of federal controls, uh, uh, limiting the extent to which toll roads can be used in the United States. Uh, we're not through with that. There's still some things that need to be done, but it's been it's been progress and and. Uh, uh, through Reason Foundation's work, uh, the monthly newsletter on surface transportation that pounds away at this stuff like for 20 years now, uh, <laughs> has a lot of following in state DOTs, some legislative transportation committee people, some members of Congress and congressional staff. Uh, so it's building blocks, trying to, uh, to get these ideas uh, to be taken seriously and given, a, given an opening to be tried at, at, in more, more and more states. Yeah, so you've dealt with some of the objections that you faced on express toll lanes, which you said they're, they're either going to be uh, used too much and just be a normal road, or they're not going to be used at all. Uh, they're not actually going to help people get to where they want to go faster, cheaper, and more reliably. Uh, dealt with that, you can now show that, no, the, these things work the way that they're intended and can be a really important uh, uh, piece in the fight against congestion without costing ac- uh, taxpayers extra and and, uh, and dealing with some of the negative consequences that some other people might uh, might expect. Well, let's talk about the objections to um, to changing ownership yes. then, because I, I just imagine that like, uh, that can, like I work in privatization policy myself and some of the rhetoric right. can get pretty heated, but in this one, there's, there's a plausible case for like natural monopoly theory that if you turn this over right. to a private entity, they can charge basically whatever, uh, or they can charge monopoly pricing and extract, uh, 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 a lot of, well, a lot more money than, than a government, uh, might, might do. So, can you uh, talk about that? That is claimed, and and this you get this from both right and left, uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of populists on the right um, think, oh no, private sector is not necessarily good. Uh, it's likely to exploit uh, users, as as you as you said, um, and the left, uh, a lot of the left doesn't want any highways uh, to be built or capacity added, and so uh, since this is a way. Uh, the bypassing the legislature basically uh, and having the private sector uh, raise the money and and uh, recover it from tolls and so forth, uh, they oppose this uh, vociferously and, and try to stop it. Uh, what what people don't understand and it's, it takes a lot of education is that uh, it is a regulated uh, and it's not it's usually not a monopoly because uh, you know a, a network in a whole metro area. Uh, uh, is likely to have uh, projects done by various uh, companies. Each one is competitively bid. Uh, and, and we see that in, in Santiago, uh, Chile, uh, there's three or four different companies that, that make up the pieces of the, of the toll network in that urban area. Uh, in Northern Virginia, it's so far uh, until recently, it been only one company, Transurban, that has developed uh, most of the express toll lane network. But the most recent one that opened on I-66 is an entirely different Sintra uh, company that's done uh, these projects in Texas and in, in North Carolina was the winner there. And uh, so that is illustrating to people that it's not necessarily the same the same company. Uh, in Atlanta, there's a- active competitive bidding for the first of three major what we call public-private partnership highway projects on the Atlanta freeway system. Those are all express toll lane projects. Um, The regulatory piece is this is a public-private partnership. 
the partner, the public partner is typically the state DOT. And uh, they have they go into a long-term negotiation of what's, what's the oversight going to be? What is this relationship going to consist of? And it almost always has some provisions on what's, what's the formula for, for tolling, uh, who gets tolled, what kind of increases can, can be done, uh, and so forth. Uh, they have to decide in the future, if this is a 50-year uh, concession, which is a typical uh, toll uh, term, um, what happens when widening is needed, what happens when a new interchange is needed, uh, new exits, and so forth. They have to decide in advance what's a fair way to handle those things. So to, the, to what extent will the state help with either money or planning and this sort of thing? To what extent does the state have to you know, say yes or no to every single decision? Those things all have to get worked out in advance. And the state is in a position, there's usually performance requirements built in as well, uh, like pothole uh, repair, cleaning and, and removing dead animals from the freeway and maintaining pavement rough, roughness standards and so forth. And there's financial penalties typically in these long-term agreements. If, if they don't live up to uh, the terms of the agreement, you can be penalized. And there's the ultimate uh, the death knell is the termination for cause that mm-hmm. built into almost all these agreements that says if there's egregious failure to live up to the terms, uh, the state has the right to unilaterally terminate the agreement. And uh, there's no compensation in that case. Now, there's also a termination for convenience. If 10 years into it, the legislature has changed and they say, oh, gee, we don't want to be dealing with this private firm, even though they're doing everything it says in the agreement. Then there's built into the agreement is compensation provisions that they terminate for convenience. You know, if they only got mm-hmm. 10 years of their 50 years of toll revenue and still have bonds to pay off, you have a formula in there that says what's fair. Mm-hmm. It's not determined by the new legislature that hates them. It's determined <laughs> by the legally enforceable contractual agreement. And I mean, these things, they have to be done. In a, in a way that's fair. Now, one thing that this being leads to is that the procurement process typically is longer and more costly than for just building an extension of a road with the normal contractors that the state DOT uses because you need the state DOT needs legal and financial advice of a very high caliber on their side of the table to negotiate these agreements. And to have a fair, so you get to do it once, and it can last. That's right. You know, ninety nine years. Stuck with it for you know maybe even in a few, in a few cases ninety nine years. With the only one I know of that is the Chicago Skyway. Uh, so that's these are these are very big deal things. And so I don't recommend this kind of model at certainly at this stage of the game for the hundred million dollar highway project. You're talking about five hundred million to several billion as projects big enough to justify higher than normal procurement costs in order to do it right, to make sure it actually protects the public interest and, and has all the right kind of provisions. Yeah. And this is, uh, so when I think about the objections to this, I think on both the right and the left, it comes down to trust as in right, um, yes. like, like uh, we can't trust the government to do this well, uh, or we can't trust private companies to not uh, to not take advantage of our government officials and be corrupt and, uh, and all sorts of things. And when I look at even the change from um, what we've got now to a regulated utility uh, type of experience, 
it's that trust issue that it seems to be the right. biggest political barrier, as in we just don't trust that changing this will improve things. Uh, so, but I also see that your work is trying to fix that. And <laughs> yes, then, and I think I think the idea it's it's good that we have almost two almost uh, about twenty projects of this type, the regulated public private mm-hmm. partnership, because that's a that's an empirical test. You know, we can see do the kind of things that people fear actually start happening uh, mm-hmm. or does it live up to what we are saying it's supposed to do and what it seems to be working well in, in France and Italy and so forth and in Latin America and Australia. Um, there's more and more data available uh, on how these things work and scholars, believe me, are looking at, you know, writing, writing papers and, and mm-hmm. grad students writing PhD dissertations, collecting this evidence and looking at pros and cons and, and taking a point of view on it. So this is good, but but yeah, it, people are right to be skeptical because it is a big new idea with long-term consequences and lots, you know, a very big costs involved. So it's really important to do it right. The other thing I want to just make sure to mention is that uh, roads that are financed privately have a have to pass a market test because they have. Not only do they persuade the equity investors to put in maybe twenty or twenty-five percent of the total cost of building the thing. They have to provide bondholders with assurance that uh, there's actually going to be a re- enough return in revenue to pay off the damn bonds over over 30 or 40 years. And so that market test is not met on conventionally fi- funded roads that are built by state DOTs and contractors who get get who win the bid by getting the lowest price of construction, which often means that it's barely up to up to standards. And needs a lot more lifetime maintenance than if it were built better in the first place. Whereas uh, the the private firm and the you know with the bondholders and equity investors, uh, they have an incentive to minimize the life cycle cost. You know, not just the first cost, but the but the ongoing operating maintenance costs. And that means it's it's an economically more valuable proposition. Uh, you know, you don't waste as much of society's resources on building it so cheaply that it needs to be repaved and and you know rebuilt every fifteen years. Uh, so there's a there's mm-hmm. a big to use a buzzword a sustainability advantage of these long term things as well. Oh, and I, I really like that point because you're talking about like there's these two expectations you've got to meet. You've got to convince people to invest and you've got to convince people to loan money to you. And there and there's against competing projects, against anything else yep. that, that exists in the world that you yeah, can they invest can, in. They can invest similar money. money in very stable, uh, uh, old-fashioned electric utilities, uh, yeah. gas utilities, municipal water system. Those are municipal bonds, but they're still bonds and they have bondholders have the same concerns. So yeah, I mean it's it's a very different thing from normal highways that are funded out of state uh, budgets. And that third market test, which is, and you actually have to convince users to pay for Absolutely. them above the alternatives. And we yeah. actually we actually see uh, uh, in we've seen in several Texas <clears throat> Texas projects that the state DOT had come up with a preliminary design uh, for an express toll lane project, and the private firm once it had one. Uh, goes and does a detailed design and says to the state DFT, um, we really think you needed n- another on-ramp here because that's going to we're going to get more customers choosing to use this if we have it here because it's more convenient. And the state, fortunately, state Texas DOT went along and said, okay, you know best, you're taking the risk, uh, and agreed with it. And that's there's a number of examples like that of of uh, uh, the private sector because of 
having the the prospective customer provider relationship, wanting to make this as useful as possible to those customers and, of course, to their own revenue uh, to deal with the bondholders and the equity investors. It's a virtuous So you've said – yeah, so we've kind of talked about this, and I really want to summarize some some of these points, which is just we have a system now. It doesn't work the way it should. There's a better way of doing this. Regulated utilities, financed by user fees, owned by competitive private uh, private private interests, and that's not quite in the Overton window right now. At least the the full move, correct? Because of trust and. But we're but you explicitly are trying to help fix that trust with a couple of things. One, you're helping get projects off the ground to test these things uh, with uh, express toll lanes and these public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you're helping to build trust with the public by writing about it, by promoting it, by having a newsletter where you can learn about all the different efforts um, efforts that are going on. And with all of this, you're hoping to build the trust necessary to get this thing to be politically feasible so that we drive on good roads and we're not stuck in congestion. It's a very good summer. So thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but my but my big question is how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> well it's it's from you know, 30 years is a long time. Uh, a extreme amount of reading networking, occasionally being a consultant to state DOTs. Uh, I don't do that anymore. Uh, I don't have the time. But uh, uh, I, I read every single day uh, across my computer screen comes uh, uh, you know several dozen transportation news sources. I have a network of contacts. I know all kinds of people that I can ask questions of. So this is something that you don't you don't start with. <laughs> you gradually yeah. build it up over time, and building a reputation helps too. Uh, I get invited to speak at conferences. I do lots and lots of learning and networking at conferences, transportation conferences specifically, and all these things help. Uh, it's but this and this methodology of of being a pragmatic problem solver with an underlying core of principles and values. But it, I don't lead with those principles and values because lots of people don't necessarily share them. And the same with all of our other teams at Reason Foundation, pension reform and K-12 education reform and so forth. We work as problem solvers and try to convince people that each step that we suggest they take has benefits that is better than the status quo. And that's the reason to do it. Not because we don't think government should be providing schools or government should be providing roads. Uh, uh, that's a difference in approach to the, to some uh, uh, free market advocates, but we think this the track record proves that this has been very effective in in bringing about change. But you have to be very patient. Bob, thank you for coming on, and good luck in your efforts to shift the Overton window. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.